Good morning, Genesis Church. My name is Leah Poe. My family and I have been part of Genesis since 2021. Um, If you would join me now in opening your Bible or your app, Um, if you do not have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the basket in the aisle. And if you don't have a Bible at home that's easy to read, please consider that your gift from Genesis and take that home. Our passage for today is the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. If you are using one of those Genesis Bibles, that's page 249. All right, Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Well, good morning, everybody. How was your Christmas? Got everything on your wish list? No? Sorry. Kids, are you already bored with your toys? And for those of you that got littles, how more interested were they in the boxes than the actual contents of the boxes, right? Um, So, if this is the first time you're with us here at Genesis, um, and especially during this the season of Advent, we've been going through uh, this Old Testament book of Ruth, and we titled it Ruthless, a Hallmark Christmas Story. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with the plot line of a Hallmark Christmas movie. Man and woman meet in a small town. One has a family business. They start to fall in love. Something throws a wrench into the plans. However, in the end, everything works out, and they get engaged, married, live happily ever after, etc. But I've found rumor on the internet that researchers are feverishly working and apparently close to developing a second plot line. So we went with this theme because as you read through the book of Ruth, it centers around three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and it does kind of play out like a Hallmark movie. So let's take a moment, let's just take a moment and get everybody caught up to speed. Like I said, if you're here, this is the first time um, you've been in the series, there's a lot of stuff you've missed already, so I just want to go over what we've covered so far real quick to catch you up. Um, So we start out chapter one of of Ruth, there's this guy named Elimelech, and he lives in Bethlehem, which probably sounds familiar to you, right? A little town of Bethlehem, the city where Jesus is born. And they live, him and his wife and his two sons live in Bethlehem, and there's a famine in the land. And it's during the time of the judges. Uh, it's before any of the kings of Israel take the throne. And at the end of the book of Judges, it says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's a famine. They, Elimelech decides to move his family to this area called Moab. So it's outside of the promised land outside of the promises of God. He should have stayed, right? He should have stayed. But instead, he went looking for food. And we don't know if he was planning on just, you know, a quick visit or not, but we do know that they settled there. And um, he winds up dying in Moab. His two sons married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and married for approximately 10 years. They don't have any kids, and then the two sons die. So now we've got Naomi, who was Elimelech's husband, and who t- her two daughters-in-law, all widows. And <clears throat> what happens? Uh, Naomi hears that 
there is food back in Israel. Bethlehem has started to harvest food again. The food's growing again. So she decides, I'm moving back. I got to go back and be with my people. Um, And so she decides to move, but she tells her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, stay here with your people. Now, I found this interesting. We talked about this after the first after the first sermon that, you know, if you believe your God is the one true and living God, which the God of Israel is, why would Ruth tell them, or why would Naomi tell Ruth and Orpah, stay here and worship your idols? You know, that's kind of weird to me. But that's what she tells them. You stay here, find new husbands with your people. Don't come with me. And Orpah says, okay, that's fine. That's what I'll do. But Ruth says, no. I'm going with you. And in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, we hear, we read this declaration from Ruth. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. She converted. She gave up her idols and followed the God of Israel. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and, also, and, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So Naomi and Ruth moved back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley season, the barley harvest. But the problem is they're both widows. So they're kind of on the outside looking in. They're outcasts, so to speak. Chapter 2 picks up um, there at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, part of the Old Testament law was if you had a plot of land and you were harvesting, you were supposed to leave the outside rows for people that were in dire straits, the poor, whatnot, so they could come and get some kind of food. And so Ruth goes out and finds a field and starts doing just that. And it just so happens that it was the field of this man named Boaz. And Boaz sees her out there, doesn't recognize her, asks one of his, one of his guys, hey, who's the, who is this? Well, this is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And so he just heaps kindness upon kindness on her. Gives her all types of grain so that her and Naomi are not struggling, are not, are not hurting for food at all. And it's, I mean, he even invites her to sit down with his servants for lunch, right? And then... Um, one, uh, Ruth gets back and tells Naomi, you know, she's carrying all this grain, right? And Naomi, uh, Naomi says, where did you get this? Well, I was in the, in the field, this guy named Boaz. He's our, he's one of our kinsmen's redeemers. That is a, not really a fancy term, but it's a term meaning he's a relative that can buy our land and redeem you, make you a wife again. Raise up sons. That way you're not an outcast. So then at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, it's now the end of the wheat harvest. So we're talking three to four months. And um, Naomi hatches up this plan. She's like, okay, harvest time is almost done. We've got plenty of food, but we really need to get something a little more secure in in place. So Ruth, I want you to doll yourself up, take a shower, put on some perfume, put on your nicest clothes, and go up to the threshing floor, wait for Boaz to get done working a hard day's work, has a good meal, falls asleep, 
and do something weird and lay at his feet. Just lay there at his feet. So that's what she does. He's like, okay, I'll do that. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, freaked out that all of a sudden now there's a woman at his feet, right? And uh, it's, I'm sure it's dark. He can't see who it is. So he said, who is it? It's Ruth, your servant. You are a kinsman redeemer. I need you to redeem me. Basically proposing to Boaz, take me as your wife. And Boaz is flattered. He says, blessed are you because you didn't run after the younger dudes. Whether they were rich or poor, you came after me. So he's probably an older guy, right? And this, this budding romance that we read and, you know, maybe, oh, may, is there a spark between them? But then, the, then comes the wrench, right? Boaz says, but there's another one that's closer, meaning there is another relative that's closer uh, in line to your dead husband that has first dibs. That's kind of weird, but, you know, how, how did Ruth feel? We don't know, but it must have been hard, right? But what we do see is this is, a, this is around midnight. He says, today, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to find them, and we're going to get it straightened out. We are going to get your future secured, whether it's me or whether it's this other dude. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 4. We pick it up in chapter 4, and what we're seeing here in the first section is the faithfulness of Boaz. The faithfulness of Boaz. He kept his word, and he did it with haste. He said, I'm going to go down today, and I'm going to find him, and we're going to figure out who's going to redeem you. And then Naomi goes, or Ruth goes home, tells Naomi, says, just sit here and wait, and because he's going to take care of it. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And that's what we see. And then when we look down in verses 2 through 8, if you look down in verses 2 through 8 of Ruth chapter 4, this is where he finds this closer kinsman. And it's at the city gate. The city gate is kind of where they did... uh, their transactions, their business dealings, that kind of thing. So it's at the city gate, and he says, hey, turn aside, friend. The Hebrew there is very vague. It's not a name. It's a so-and-so, Mr. No-Name, Mr. John Doe, very vague. They don't name him. And what happens? So he, he says, hey, Naomi's looking to sell her land, and you're the closest redeemer. Do you want to? He's like, well, yeah, I want more land. That means more money, right? Initially, there's a, there is an investment where I've got to purchase it, but then we can grow more, we can harvest more, I can sell more, and pass it on. He's like, okay, that's great, but when you do that, what happens Ruth is part of the deal. You've got to marry Ruth and raise up offspring in, in uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to raise up offspring that would carry on Malon, that's her, her dead husband's name, and then if they were to have a son, that land would pass to that boy, and he, the, this kinsman redeemer would no longer own it. 
a big sacrifice, a huge sacrifice. And so what do we see? We see that for him, it was all about the ROI, the return on investment. He would have invested the money for the land as long as he got to keep it and pass it on. But as soon as Ruth enters the picture and he's got a father, a son that the land would pass to, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. And so he says, no, I don't want to do that. That's not a good, that's not a good deal for me. You go ahead and do it. And so then we get this glimpse at this really weird tradition, right? Where the guy takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. I don't know about you, but if we're doing a deal, don't give me your shoe. I mean, that's just weird. It's gross. I don't want to. But this is, this is what they did. It might have had something to do um, with Joshua chapter 3, where the Lord tells Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you. So it's like, okay, here's my sandal. I can't tread on that land so it doesn't belong to me kind of thing. That might have been what it's from. We don't really know. But listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about, about this interaction <clears throat> from his book, Faithful God. In his retraction, this anonymous man fits wonderfully into the conclusion of the book. In chapter 1, two women are faced with a decision, a costly decision of faith. One turns back and is heard of no more. Now in chapter 4, two men are presented with a costly commitment. One turns back and his name remains, undisclosed for the rest of world history. In this way, the closer relative appears as a kind of foil to Boaz, who, by contrast, displays Hesed, that loyal love that pours itself out in fulfilling covenantal obligations, no matter what the material expense. Therein lies his godliness, his likeness to the great covenant God, who at great expense redeemed his people from Egypt and at infinitely great expense will redeem sinners through the gift of his son on the cross." And then in verses 9 and 10, we see Boab's declaration. So the deal has kind of already been done. He's got the sandal. And then he says, let's see here. Let me find it here. Down in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought the land, I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not, may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And I find it interesting that he doesn't just name Ruth, but he calls out that she is a Moabite, right? As I was studying and just contemplating and meditating on this passage, I wonder how much talk was going on behind Ruth's back when she, when she arrived in Bethlehem. Yeah, she was a convert to Judaism, but she was still a Moabite, right? And maybe some people were nice to her face, but then, you know, behind her back, I can't, man, why is this Moabite here? She's not supposed to be here, right? A lot of flack kind of thing. And then Boaz specifically says, I'm going to marry Ruth the Moabite. He calls it out. 
Boaz was willing to take on whatever shame was associated with her for doing what was right by marrying Ruth. To Boaz, doing what was faithful and right was worth it, no matter the cost. Boaz is, as we saw a few weeks ago, a Micah 6-8 man. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So we see the faithfulness of Boaz here. He did exactly what he said he was going to do, and he didn't hesitate. He did it that same day. He found him, got the deal done, and got Ruth's future secure. And then in verses 13 through 22, we see the faithfulness of God. First, we see, the, we see God's faithfulness to Ruth there in verse 13. What's it say? So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. God gave her conception. She had been barren this whole time, right? She was married for 10 years to Naomi's, one of Naomi's sons, and they never had any children. She could never conceive and have children. So God granted her conception, and she bore a son. God showed his faithfulness to Ruth. Secondly, God not only showed his faithfulness to Ruth, he also showed his faithfulness to Naomi, Via the same baby. Look at verses 14 to 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Because of this grandson of Naomi, she was no longer an outcast. Her empty bitterness was filled to overflowing with love for this new grandson. Verse 16 says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. That, that word nurse could mean nurse. It could mean like a mother, a caregiver. The New Living Translation translates it this way. She cared for him as if he were her own. Right? He just, she just loved on this baby. She just loved on that baby. So God showed his faithfulness to Ruth securing her future. God showed his faithfulness to Naomi, securing her future. And then God showed his faithfulness to the nation of Israel through this same baby. In verses 17 through 22, we see uh, the women of the neighborhood gave him, a say, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So through little, little baby Obed, would come the future and most prominent king of Israel. The king in which God promised that one would come from his lineage to which there would be no end to his kingdom. From baby Obed, we get David the king. We see that at the very end of the chapter. And then if we were to turn to the book of Matthew, we would, all, we would see that through Obed, through David, we get Jesus. Jesus the King. God showing his faithfulness. So what can we pull out of this passage that would apply to us? Well, one thing, remember at the beginning of the story, both Naomi and Ruth are widows. Their, their future is very unsecure. 
And even though Ruth had turned her back on her former gods, little g, and turned to follow Yahweh, the big God, big G, the one true and living God, she's still an outsider. She needed somebody to redeem her, and God orchestrated all that perfectly. But you know what? God, through Obed, through David, we get Jesus, and Jesus offers redemption to us. So we see God's redemption offered. God's redemption offered. We are, when we are born into this world, we're not unlike Ruth, really. At the beginning of the story, we're foreigners, we're idolaters, we're separated from the one true and living God. And the thing is, we don't even know it. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 2 describes us. He, Paul, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's writing to people that have put their faith in Jesus, but he's describing what they were, what they were like before they had done that. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is each and every one of us apart from Jesus. If you and I are striving to get in good with God by somehow being good enough, we're believing a lie. It doesn't matter what you say you're going to do tonight at midnight to change your life for the better starting tomorrow. All our righteous deeds are utter filth in God's sight. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. There's nothing we can do to please God. There's nothing we can do to alleviate the issue of our sin and the punishment that it deserves. And if we continue in this condition to the end of our life here on earth, the outcome is going to be disastrous. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. And just as, as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. No reincarnation. No second chances, no do-overs, no extra lives. You get one shot at this. That is terrifying news. Right? I know it is to me. If I were to stand before the Lord and say, God, look at all the good stuff I've done. And he would just say, that's disgusting. Get out of my sight. Oh, dear friend, today there is good news of great joy, right? We're celebrating Advent. There is good news of great joy. God doesn't leave us here. He provided a way out. He provided a redeemer. Let's look back at again at Ephesians chapter 2. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature uh, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him. Oh, sorry. My verses got all jumbled. All jumbled. Even, though, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. <clears throat> For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God saves us not because of our righteous deeds, because we don't have any. God saves us on the finished work of Christ. And listen to what he says. When we put our faith in Jesus, this is what he says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You, weren't, you once were far off, you were foreigners, you are brought near. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This morning, if you turn from yourself, turn from your unrighteousness and turn to Jesus, you will be redeemed, you'll be forgiven, and you'll become a member of God's family. As I was studying for the sermon, I kept on getting like subtitles popping into my head. Um, For instance, from a kinsman comes a king, from a sandal comes a savior. Um, But the one that really resonated with me and that we're seeing in this passage is through faithfulness comes a family. Through Boaz's faithfulness and through God's faithfulness, there's a family that is born, that redeems Ruth and Naomi, gives them a secure future. And through that same family, we get Jesus who redeems us and brings us into his family. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This is what it looks like to repent, to humble ourselves before the Lord and cry out for forgiveness. This is Jesus speaking. He also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We sing songs here at Genesis that constantly remind us of the finished work of Jesus and what it does for us. William Cowper, in his song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, says it this way, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and the sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue Lies silent in the grave. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Dear friend, God is offering you that same redemption this morning. He's offering to save you from yourself, the deadness in your sin, the deadness to the author and giver of life. God is offering to save you to a life with meaning, a life with true and lasting purpose into an everlasting family. And maybe you've heard this type of, you've heard this news before, but you've never made that decision. Perhaps this is the very first time you're hearing it. That offer is here for you today. So if you're here this morning or you're watching online, and you feel the tug of God on your heart, don't put off talking to someone. During our last psalm, we'll have folks over here um, that you can come up, we can pray with you. If you have questions, we'll talk with you. Or you can see me or one of the elders after the service. We'd be, we would be overjoyed to talk to you about what this looks like of humbling yourselves and putting your faith in Jesus. It's the most important decision of your life. So point one, God's redemption offered. Point two, God's bigger, bigger picture in view. God's bigger picture in view. Look back at our story. Elimelech and family leave Bethlehem for a foreign country. Elimelech dies. Both sons then marry Moabite women, and then they both die. Naomi and Ruth go through an extremely difficult season of life to which they know there may be no solution. However, God orchestrates these events so that Naomi, with Ruth in tow, returns to Bethlehem. Ruth then just so happens to glean grain from Boaz's field. Boaz just so happens to not be a turd, but is in fact a righteous man and provides for Naomi and Ruth. Boaz later, with the prompting of Ruth, redeems Ruth, and they have a son who just so happens to be the grandfather of King David. God orchestrated all of that. And yet Naomi and Ruth never lived to see 
how it all turns out. They don't know that little baby Obed is going to be the grandfather of a great king and a man after God's own heart. Now, don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that if you just go ahead and you do the right things and you follow what God tells you to do, that it's just all going to work out like Naomi and Ruth. It doesn't always work out that way. God doesn't promise that it's always going to work out that way. He's not a genie, right? And you just rub the lamp correctly and everything turns out okay. There's many in our family here that this past year has been excruciatingly difficult. And there are many people across this nation this morning that are hearing a message like that. If you just do the things, God's going to bless you. He wants you rich. He wants you healthy. He wants you happy. And that's not necessarily the truth. It's not that he wants you sad or miserable. He wants you holy. To think that God's purpose is just to be a genie for us, to make us happy, healthy, that's a lie from the deceiver. And why would the deceiver want us to believe that? Because if God is, a ju- is just a genie, and we can call on him to just make everything right, then when things aren't going right, it sows doubt. Either God isn't good, or God doesn't love me. And we both know those aren't true. God is good. And God loves us. Because we see it in Advent. When God the Son put on human flesh and condescended. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to have it up on the screen. The writer of Hebrews, he's going through this book just laying out chapter after chapter how Jesus is so superior to what they know of from the Old Testament law. And he gets to chapter 11, and if you're familiar with it, it's the Faith Hall of Fame. The writer is just listing out all these Old Testament heroes. But it's not to point out that look at all the good they did. It's look at how they trusted the Lord and what the Lord did through that trust. We get down to chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Do you hear that? When we follow Jesus, we're not promised an easy life. Some people had it really bad 
There are people, there are, there are brothers and sisters in Christ today across the world that are in prison, being tortured because they follow Jesus. And yet, this big picture, we don't know, that we, don't, we can't see the final outcome. But if we think uh, all this bad is happening because God isn't good or God doesn't love me, we're believing a lie. So when we go through those hard times, we have to remember God is good. God is so good. I specifically think of people in our, in our congregation who have lost loved ones in the last couple years. And listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says here, again from his book, Faithful God. But while Naomi experiences this fullness, right, with baby Obed, we should not be oblivious to the dark night through which she, can, through which she has come. The blessing of the child is real and glorious, but is not meant to be a substitute for what she has lost. We need to be as realistic as the author of Ruth. Whatever interim blessing and fullness we experience as the community of God's people, there will always be in this world a sense of incompleteness, of not yetness. We lose the most precious possessions in our lives, and in this world nothing can ever take their place. So it is with Naomi. Is there no final resolution? Yeah, there is, but it lies far beyond the lifetime of Naomi. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. When we go through hard things, family, it's not that the hard things are good, right? Not, the hard things are not necessarily good. If we, are, if we have a loved one that is killed by a drunk driver, that is not a good thing. But God works even the sinful things for good if you're a follower of Jesus. I want to encourage you. Um, we just, some of us went down to extreme winter with the youth this past week. And one night, I, just, I, want, I encourage the youth and I want to just share what I shared with them. Um, we see in the book of Ruth, we see it in the book of Esther, we see it really throughout the entire Bible. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And even when we make decisions that have lasting consequences, for instance, an affair that leads to divorce, or teenage pregnancy, or you name it, but there's lifelong consequences, right? And we think, well, I'm done. I'm God can't use me anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've messed up too bad. God is sovereign, and he can use that for his glory and your good. Right? He can use even your sin for his glory and your good. All things, all things work together for good for those who love God. Like I said, some of us has experienced something, some really hard stuff this past year or two. Some of us haven't, but this year, I mean, we 2024, tonight we're making all the plans. Tonight, 2024 is going to be awesome. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, and that's fine. It's great to make plans, but we don't know what's coming. 
We don't know what's coming. Some of us might experience some very hard stuff this year. Some very hard stuff. Let me encourage you to constantly preach the gospel to yourself. And remind yourself that God is God. He is in control and he is good. And also don't go through it alone. God saved us into a people. He saved us into a family for just that purpose. We need each other. I need you. You need me. We need each other. When we go through hard stuff, God doesn't want us to go through it alone. We need each other. So this morning, if you're struggling with something, a a tough situation, and you don't know where to turn, you don't know what to do, and you haven't talked to anybody about it, please, again, during our second song, we'll have people up here. Come, talk to them. Let us pray for you. Come find me. Come find Mike, one of the other elders. We want to help you. We don't want you to walk through it alone. Brother and sister, don't leave today feeling alone in your struggle. Let us be the family that God designed us to be. And as we pray, as we encourage you, you then do that likewise. Because we all go through those struggles, right? Sometimes I'm on a high note and it's going real good and you're going through some struggles and eventually the tables are going to turn and I'm going to need you. We need each other. And it might feel like whatever you're going through is just like it is the ultimate. And I'm not, I'm not telling you it's not hard. It, is, it can be very difficult. But God's bigger picture He's working out something glorious and it's for his glory and you're good. So please, these last two points. God is offering you redemption this morning. If you don't know Jesus, why wait another day? Don't take the chance. If you die, apart from Jesus, there's judgment and you don't want to face it. You have the, you have the chance today. Please come and talk to us. And family, if you're going through something hard, please reach out. We want to help you. We want to be there for you. We want to encourage you. Don't go through it alone. Don't go through it alone. We love you. God saved us into a people. You are my people, whether you like it or not. And I need you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you through this story of Ruth. You showed the faithfulness of this man, Boaz, and how he did what he said he was going to do. And he secured a future for Naomi and Ruth. And through that little baby Obed, you brought mighty King David. And through David, you sent your son, who offers us redemption. The redemption that draws us in, that brings us near. That we're no longer aliens and strangers on the outside looking in, but we are part of a family. One that will praise you forever and ever. 
And Lord, I pray that if there are any here this morning that are struggling and they've lost that, just that vision of all things work together for good, even though it's really difficult and they're struggling and maybe they're faltering their faith and they're starting to question whether you're good or not. Lord, help us to be there for them. Help us to come alongside. Help them to open up and ask for help. Because if we don't know, we can't help. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. And we just praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.